to the North Group. Security, refined by intelligence. We're here to spotlight the best practices and critical safety and security issues in today's world and provide actionable strategies that you can implement into your day-to-day -day operations. From the individual to organizational level, our goal is to improve your risk management and response capabilities. Thanks for spending time with us today, and here's your host. Good morning. Welcome to TNG's podcast, June 19th. We have a great guest on today. Uh, I'm Steve Hernandez, your host, and uh, our guest is uh, David Harvey. Dave, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Good morning, Steve. Uh, thanks for inviting me here. Um, right now, I am uh, a consultant, which means I do what I want to do when I want to do it in consultant terms. But Previous to that, I was the director of the Michigan Commission on Law Enforcement Standards. Uh, did that for about seven years. And I also worked for a couple of uh, nonprofits. Uh, have done a little bit of traveling with them and a law enforcement nonprofit. Prior to that, um, I was uh, a, a city manager for uh, the city of Garden City. And prior to that, I was a police chief at a couple of places, Metro Airport being one. And, and then my uh, most of my career was spent for the city of Garden City as a police officer and then as a uh, I retired there as a police chief. And prior to all that, going back to the start, I was uh, I started out in the United States Army as an MP and uh, was blessed to have an awesome career in the Army uh, and did a lot of training, a lot of schools, a lot of good work. And uh, I was also a military police investigator and uh, actually went back into reserve sometime after I got out and did a little bit of that and was attached to a CID unit. So law enforcement's really been my life, public service, so to speak, and uh, the consulting I do today is all involved in law enforcement training. I'm doing some leadership schools for law enforcement, and I've done some traveling abroad, uh, doing some uh, things for police in Colombia and Nigeria and uh, Kosovo, uh, to name a couple. So uh, I have had a, I've had an awesome career in law enforcement, and, uh, and like I said, still doing it as a consultant. Now, Dave, we're, we're going on how many years of knowing each other here? Um, eight, nine? Yeah, probably closer to 10, somewhere like that. I met you at calls. certainly. Been a while. Yeah, yeah. It's been a great relationship. Uh, we've really gotten to know each other and became good friends over the years. And, you know, your your experience within, uh, within law enforcement and executive level management is just second to none. So, um, well, we're going to go through some questions, Dave. I, I really, first question I really wanted to ask you here was, uh, based on your extensive experience in law enforcement, what is your opinion from a, a leadership standpoint on the response or lack thereof from government officials with everything we're dealing with right now from riots to looting to uncertainty to COVID? I mean, we've just had a, we just had a crazy six months, crazy six months of uncertainty in North America. And, and I think one of the, one of the uh, biggest issues is, is law enforcement and, and the way that they're being treated and demonized. And I really just want your opinion on, on, on the response from a leadership standpoint. Sure. You know, I'm uh, actually running a summit for the Michigan Association of Chiefs of Police coming up uh, in September. And this is going to be the topic is what did we learn? And uh, originally it started out with what did we learn through COVID? The, the summit's taken on now and what we learned with COVID and what we learned with all the protests and what do both have to do with each other. And that's going to be just my point is that these are all tied together. We're not going to have a summit just for COVID and a summit just for the protests and 
all the issues that emanated from what happened in Minneapolis, uh, you know, what we learn and, and what good things did we do because, you know, we screw up and what, what did we do right? There's some things we did really good and uh, how, can we, how can we do that again? My perception is, you know, it's hard for me to say what one chief or sheriff did was right or wrong. Uh, it's, you know, you got to make that decision based on the, the scenario you had, like uh, the, the sheriff in Genesee, gutsy call. I give him a lot of credit for what he did, taking off his uh, body armor and walking out in the crowd and saying, hey, let's talk. Uh, I'm not a big fan of, uh, I think, a chief who uh, laid down on the ground and had his hands tied or something like that. I think there's just so far we can go. I think, you know, acknowledging, acknowledging the protesters uh, and where COVID ties in, not only acknowledging, but understanding that some of this is born out of the stress that we've all been under. And, and maybe the, it was a lightning rod that happened in Minneapolis to set this thing off and everybody was already frustrated, especially, you know, you can imagine being locked down if you're in the inner city and you got nowhere to go. You know, if you live on four acres in a house away from people and you got things to do, it's one thing. But if you've, you have little and you're trapped inside your home, it just builds up anger and animosity and then it just takes something to set it off. So how do those two tie in? And I think understanding that is something from a leadership standpoint of how does all that, all that work in and then meeting with these people and, and, and understanding where they come from. So I think, I think leadership has done some good. I think they've, not, they've done some stuff that's not so good. I, I hesitate to just to say, you know, one chief did right, one chief did wrong. I could pick out some really good things. I really applaud the Dallas police chief. I'm proud to say she comes from the Detroit Police Department, uh, Chief Renee Hall. She did an excellent job, I think, with uh, standing up to some protests uh, that happened out in Dallas. You know, uh, that's on the good side. Uh, on the bad side is we just, in Seattle, we vacated. I, I'm not an advocate of vacating public buildings and allowing people to take over. Sure, you know, if the, if the odds are overwhelming for a few officers to try to maintain a, a building or something, that, that's one thing. Like in Minneapolis, maybe they should have vacated. But at some point, we need to go back in. And I just think it sends the wrong message that, we allow people to, to take, because here for me, a leadership in law enforcement is that we, we, we in public, and, and this is my city manager's point of view too, is I work for everybody. We work for the protesters, we work for the non-protesters, we work for everybody in the middle, we work for everybody. So if I'm walking away from a government service or a government building, those are taxpayer dollars. If I was a Seattle taxpayer, I, I would be asking what, what my dollars have paid for these buildings and streets. And I, you either give my tax money back or go get that back because some, somebody, I should be allowed to use that as well. So, you know, we got to remember we work for everybody and we can't just acquiesce too far one way versus too far another way. In some ways, I felt we have bent too far in the protests uh, and we have negated the rights of our other citizens uh, who have just as many rights as the people that are, are protesting. So. I think there's some good, there's some bad. We're going to learn a lot out of this and hopefully take it forward. You know, we learned some things out of Ferguson. Ferguson started a lot of this too back under the previous administration. We had the Ferguson report, uh, you know, that uh, Michael Brown was, uh, was uh, what died in that police interaction. And the police officer was cleared. Not only was he cleared locally, but he was cleared by the uh, Department of Justice and the Obama administration. But we still had massive protests and riots. And But we had... The Ferguson report, which was critical of the police response, and I, I agree with a good parts of those reports on things that we didn't do right. 
then uh, then the 21st Century Policing Task Force report came out. There's some it's controversial, but there's some good parts of it in there, and a lot of things were implemented. So I, I think there's some good, and we'll we'll do that again. That that's some there's going to be some good things that come out of this that we can all learn from. So I think uh, from a leadership standpoint. Uh, uh, we'll have we'll have a lot to learn, a lot to discuss as we uh, as we do some critiquing of this in the future. Now, with everything going on, um, and and I actually, you know, we spent some time on the ground in Minneapolis recently um, on the on the security side, and with everything going on, I mean, the fear of not just being able to have the support from you know, responding agencies or what have you, but the fear of doing the wrong thing. Do you think that is driving, you know, the decision for folks to walk off the job and, and to, to leave, you know, different cities and towns and communities, you know, to, to a further unsafety, uh, an unsafe environment, if you will. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you don't believe that uh, people, uh, your leadership, are going to support you uh, if you make a mistake. I mean, look at it this way. A doctor makes a slip with a knife, you know, cuts cut your colon, uh, and infection runs through your body and you die. Uh, the, the, the surgeon's not charged of the crime. Uh, they're sued, probably, uh, and somebody's probably going to get some money out of that, and, and rightfully so. They made a mistake. That's why they have insurance. A police officer makes a split-second decision and makes a mistake. Uh, the first thing is we have... An, and especially these days, if it's if it's an African American, that there's immediate protests, and uh, and then everybody's demanding charges and, and an arrest and incarceration uh, before there's even a trial. So you can imagine being a police officer getting up and going to work the next day, wondering today the day that I'm going to be on national TV is today the day that I'm going to make a mistake or there's going to be a perception because. It doesn't matter at the end if if uh, these officers are adjudicated and acquitted. Let's say they are. Uh, their lives are going to be ruined in the meantime. Uh, you know, I'll share with you. I don't mind sharing with you that I was involved in a, in a fatal interaction uh, back in the 90s as a police officer and uh, in the line of duty to protect myself and others. I had to shoot and kill a man. And uh, you know, it's a significant part of any police officer's careers if they have to take uh, a fatal force uh, in any any particular incident. And but the but then the uh, investigation took four months, four months to clear me from a hom I was being investigated for a homicide. So I go to work that day doing my normal job like everybody else does. And now I'm being investigated for a homicide for doing something that I'm being paid to do. That is uh, that can be problematic for police officers uh, thinking about that every day going on. I didn't, you know, it didn't bother me the rest of my career. I went out and did my job every day, but I felt I had the support of my agency and I had the support of others. So you can imagine if you don't, and in the life and death decisions that we have to make in a microsecond, it can it can really. So I have empathy for uh, the officers that that don't show up. You know, you could get mad and say that's that's their oath. They swore to do that. Yeah, they did. Uh, and and there, that makes it problematic, but there's a reality to it. There's a reality to the fact that uh, even if you're exonerated, your career and your life has changed for, forever, and you have to think about your family uh, at home who go through just as much or sometimes worse than you do. That's the human side of the job. So I don't, I, I don't, I don't think there's enough 
I don't think there's enough uh, credit giving to that human side of police officers. You know, a friend of mine was involved in a uh, nonprofit. Uh, she, she's a former police officer and police chief, and she was an advisor on some police training with a nonprofit out of Washington, D.C., and they were at a big meeting in Atlanta putting this program together, which was bringing police officers and, and uh, uh, children from urban areas and children of color together. And it's a great project. They put together a, a great product. But at one point, the, uh, the CEO, who happened to be an attorney, she was African-American, she turned to my friend. Uh, they were, oh, she, I'm sorry. They were having a discussion about uh, police officers, and uh, they were really down on police officers going to work every day and looking for violence. And my friend turned to everyone and, and defended the officers, saying, you know, uh, the police officers don't get up every day and, and think about things like that. And she was surprised when this attorney CEO said, so what do police officers think about every day? And she was surprised. She said, well, what do you think they think about? They think about they got to go to work, but they've also got to get home because they've got to get their kid to soccer or they've got to get home to dinner or they've got this or they've got that or they're going to school. They think about things like everybody else. For some reason in this country, we have vilified police officers and think that, you know, they go home and they jump in a box and, and break glass in the case of emergency, they go back to work and they look to go out and hurt somebody every day. No, they're mothers and fathers and their sisters and their brothers and they're just like everybody else. So when these things happen, the, the human side of them comes out. I think we have to give them a little bit of deference to that, that these are very turbulent times and it would be difficult to go to work wondering if the very next traffic stop you made um, is, is gonna be something that's gonna put you on the national spotlight not only get killed, but now put you on a national spotlight. I, I personally, uh, I, 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 maybe another officer would say this, I, I'm, I'm not as afraid of a bullet as I am now the, uh, the media. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, the media has, uh, has definitely fanned some flames here. Um, do you think that the current situation uh, with, with all the unrest and, and you know, the uncertainty um, before that, is reflective of the original intent of the protester body. Um, do you think that there's agitators in the middle of that seeking, you know, different political ends? Oh, absolutely. You know, and I've got some experience of that uh, going back when I was a detective. I we had a an issue in uh, in Garden City where this uh, it was called a record shop that dates me a bit. Uh, but it was suggested he had uh, racist music and things like that. And there was this group called, back in the day, the National Women's Rights Organization Coalition. I think they called themselves NROC. I don't know if they exist any longer, but they emanated off the campus of Wayne State University. And they were organizing uh, kids off from the high school for this massive protest. And we were alerted to it. And I was the investigator on it. I investigated NROC, National Women's Rights Organization Coalition, and I, I could not find anywhere where they represented women's rights. Uh, I couldn't find where they actually represented anti-racist views. Uh, from what I could tell, they were just there to agitate, and they were training our kids at our high school how to be uh, agitators and violent protesters, even to the point of instructing them how to make uh, different weapons. And uh, we eventually quelled that. They did show up. There were some protesters that came, and we were able to, uh, without anybody getting hurt, we were able to solve that situation. But I learned a lot about the anatomy of a riot. There's a very small amount of people who actually believe in the cause. Uh, we saw that in Ferguson. You saw Ferguson, uh, the residents of Ferguson, telling people to leave their town. That wasn't their fight uh, because they were burning down their town, and people were coming from all over the country. I think this 
is the same thing. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for me. I could argue stats all day about the original intent. You know, I could argue the stats and say that more, more white men are killed by police officers uh, than there are black men. So then the, the opposite is going to be that while there's smaller percent, 12% African-Americans in this country and the percentage of black men killed, just it doesn't equate. It's too high compared to the number of white men and Hispanics. So we can go back and forth and argue. Uh, and, and it becomes really kind of fruitless. We could even argue the, the status of uh, discrimination. I mean, I could argue and say that based on 12% population of, of uh, non-Hispanic black, blacks in this country, over 10% of the 116th sitting Congress is uh, African-American. So we could say there's some equality there. We had an African-American president. For me, none of that makes really any, uh, really any sense because it comes down to the fact that if you feel like you are being discriminated against, you're being discriminated against. Perception becomes reality. So I have nothing, I have, I have nothing but respect for these people that come out who truly believe that in the African-American community that law enforcement is targeting them and they feel, they feel like they're being discriminated against and they feel like the percentages just don't equate. So I can understand that. That there's a level of, and I think every police chief, every police officer I know personally can understand that. We understand, you know, if you feel, if you could be in the safest environment in the world, but if you don't feel safe, you're not safe. You could be in the most unsafe environment in the world, but if you feel safe, you're safe. So if you feel discriminated against, you feel that there's some racist issues. So who am I to argue that other than to sit down and try to, to convey to you that I'm not doing that? So I, I think there's a legitimate place for that argument and discussion in our country with law enforcement and anybody of color. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when, uh, when these wars started overseas uh, and then 9-11, uh, and I was the police chief at the airport uh, uh, after 9-11, but, um, you know, we had uh, Middle Eastern and Arabic population. Uh, I was dealing with the Arab American League coming out of Washington almost uh, weekly to meet with me because they felt we were targeting uh, uh, people people in the Arabic community um, uh, with, with, random, with searches. And we used to do random searches, but you know, I could argue back that there was a large population, one of the largest populations of Arabic people is in the city of Dearborn and they fly a lot. Uh, so there was a, a high number of people flying through the airport. So yeah, when we do random searches, more than likely somebody of Arab descent is gonna be a person that's gonna be pulled over. But, you know, I, I could make those arguments all day. They still felt like they were being targeted. So I tried to start a conversation to try to show them, here's why we're doing this. Here's what, why we're doing it. Here's the procedures that we have. We're not targeting uh, anybody of any particular race, creed, or color. Uh, we're just trying to protect the airport. I think those are the good conversations. So going back to your original point, and I know I'm coming a long way around it, is to say that has it been hijacked? I think it has. And I think there are people that just want to cause dissent and have ulterior motives. I think there are people in the, with the original issue uh, understand that. I've heard some speak out um, and tell people to get out of their issue and, and not make it theirs because they have, uh, they've, they've changed it. And uh, so, yeah, I agree. I, I think there's, uh, it's just grown out of proportion. And, I, and I'm sorry, I'm just on the side of, I don't care how bad it is. There's no reason for violent protest and looting. I, I don't care. You, for me, you just can't, you can't, uh, make that something uh, that is real to me and say that, that that's the right thing to do. There's reasons for protests, and I understand that people want to be heard, but when you start looting and tearing down and burning buildings and public property, uh, it's gone way too far, and I think there needs to be a response. 
Yeah, and I mean, I just got to add, right, for, for our listeners, I mean, my, my opinion of, you know, the, the George Floyd case is, you know, I, I feel for, for Mr. Floyd and that family. Um, I, I think that, you know, I personally think that an officer was in the wrong. Uh, I think that was a, you know, very much an excessive use of force. Um, but I, I also think that that situation has also understanding that we can't just go kill cops now because of, of one bad apple. We can't, we can't endanger, you know, our, uh, you know, the, the men and women that answer the calls for service when nobody else is coming, you know, when a, when a single mom is home with her kids and there's a break in, um, you know, I mean, I just, I think that we need to be a society that bands together does the right thing. But I guess the next question I would have, you know, when you, when you get into talking about um, defunding the police, you know, I mean, I saw, we saw a precinct in Minneapolis get overrun and they gave the precinct up. They, they literally had helicopters out there removing officers from the roof of the precinct. Um, you know, how, how could defunding the police affect response by law enforcement to the community and, and quality of life? I mean, where's the, where's the quality of life there um, that, that we guarantee in America if we defund the police? Well, that's, you know, the first is the definition of defunding. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's many out there. There are people that just don't want the police to exist. Uh, that's interesting. Um, and then there are people that want to reduce the budget of the police and redirect those funds. And those are two, those are two different things. And I think, I think both have been lumped into this defunding thing. And I've seen some, I tend to be a little more conservative, but I've seen some liberal Congress people come up with some, uh, come up with some things that sound pretty reasonable to me. But for me, here's the issue. So you take money away from law enforcement. Let's just not call it defunding, but you reduce the budget of law enforcement. 80, I've, I've, run a, I've run several police departments and I've run a city. I know very well how the budgets work. 80% of any community's budget anywhere is going to be in personnel. So when you cut a budget, especially as large as the ones that's been proposed in New York City and elsewhere, you're cutting personnel. So the less personnel on the street, uh, um, obviously you get the less people to do the work. Now, well, that's fine. Okay. So you say, I take the money away, I'm going to reduce personnel, but I'm going to put the money into this program. Well, that program's got to equate somehow to be able to reduce the number of people you need on the police side to respond to the issues you're trying to resolve. Some of these social programs that have been proposed, you can take decades to put into place. In the meantime, there are people asking for service. So we can get rid of all any proactive things we, we do with law enforcement and put as many people as we can back out on the street, but you're still going to have a reduced number of police. And then there's the financial side, and nobody likes to talk about this. But, but it's, it's been this way forever, and we get accused of it in law enforcement all the time, of policing for revenue. And it comes back to traffic tickets. Well, that's the model we have. Now, we've, we've, gotten, away from, we've gotten away from forcing people to write tickets for revenue and having quotas and all those things. Maybe there's some agencies that do that, but generally speaking, we try to get away with it, get away from that because it just, you know, it doesn't equate well with the public. Frankly, I think it's one of the things that's probably changed the relationship with the public and the police the most was the uh, the invention of the car. And then somebody had to police the roadways and write tickets. And we came up with this system of tickets and fining. 
And it certainly changed, I think, how people think about policing because we take the everyday uh, person motorist and we turn them into, at one time, was a criminal because a, a traffic ticket used to be a misdemeanor violation you could arrest for. Now they're just called civil infractions. But nonetheless, that's the, that's the system we have today. And the money that comes in from those traffic tickets funds a lot of things, including our courts. A lot of people don't understand that the flow of money that comes in through a community, like say Garden City, those funds go into the, the court system. If the court system is underfunded, then the city by charter has to make up the money that the court's underfunded. And I know the judge in Garden City used to take some of that money and put it into social programs. He was big on not putting too many people in, in jail. He didn't want to put a lot of people in the county jail, so he came up with work release programs, which I thought were good. I commend him for it. But when the budgets got cut, uh, when we lost police officers, we went from 48 police officers, I think, down to the uh, uh, high 20s, uh, we, we lost a lot of traffic tickets, probably a third. Well, that was lost revenue. The first thing that went in the judge's budget was uh, the work release program, and more people started going to jail. There was a budget in the police department for housing of people in the Wayne County Jail. That tripled or quadrupled because we had to, he had to start putting people in jail instead of work release program. So it's all connected. Then MCOLs, Michigan Commission on Law Enforcement Standards, called Public Act 302 funds. Funds come in from traffic tickets that go into that fund that come back around to all police officers in the state of Michigan for training funds. So you have less police officers, you have less tickets, you have less fines, you have less money for certain social programs, and then you have less money for police training. And you've already seen legislation come out. I think the uh, governor, Governor Whitmer, has proposed, and the legislature has proposed mandatory training and things like de-escalation and all that. That all costs money. So it, every, what I'm trying to get across to you is that everything is connected. It's not just easy to say we're going to take money away from law enforcement and put it here. Okay, there's a cause and effect. When you do one thing, it's going to cause an effect on the other. If you understand that and are ready for it and plan for it, then, then I think it's okay. I, I'm not totally against reorganizing how we do law enforcement in this country, but it has to be done in a slower, more methodical way to understand that when you do something like take money away, like take police officers off the street, there's, there's gonna be a price to pay somewhere else. And that's what I don't, that's what a not enough thought is being put to at this point. Now, so how do you, how do you feel about, you know, crimes that could affect, you know, corporate entities such as like workplace violence, retail fraud, larceny, annuity. Um, <coughs> I mean, the security industry, which, which, you know, our, our we live in um, at our day job here. How do you feel like though, you know, defunding the police or discontent with the police will drive those, those topics? Well, I think we're getting to a point where law enforcement's communities, not law enforcement, uh, here's my main main point I wanted to make earlier too is that law enforcement works for the communities. I mean, the poli police are the public, the public are the police. You know, quoting uh, Sir Robert Peel going back to London, and that still holds true today. So, law enforcement does what the communities tell them to do. So, if you want change, okay, we'll make change. And I think if we're going to do that, and you want the law enforcement to be smaller but more targeted, I'm okay with that. I, I am actually a fan of that. When I was a city manager. I always felt that government should only do what the private sector can't do. As an example, I think that government should be involved in our water system. I don't mean to bring up a sore subject about Flint, but you know we can see what can happen with the water system 
uh, if it's not maintained properly and things like that. I don't think that should be out in the public sector where profit is a motive. I think some, some things government should do and have to do, and public safety is another one that we should stay into. However, we only have so many resources, so if we target our resources of our law enforcement uh, to, to the more major things and not be worried so much about security, like I went to a lot of runs and did a lot of things in crime prevention to help, uh, help, or help organizations, businesses, uh, uh, residents understand how to secure their residence better and spend an awful lot of time doing that. And we spend a lot of time doing that in law enforcement. Maybe that's up to private sector should be doing it. Maybe something like a TNG with corporations, you know, that they're going to have to turn to people like you to secure their businesses um, and, and not depend so much on law enforcement. You know, I saw that in some of my travels, I noted in Nigeria, I was working with the Nigerian police and the local uh, Lagos uh, police. Uh, Nigerian police obviously had a, authority. They were like a federal police all over uh, Nigeria and the Lagos had authority in certain areas, restricted uh, uh, areas within Lagos and restricted duties. A lot of it was quality of life stuff and traffic control, things like that. But they didn't do a lot of just general responding to businesses for minor things. And I noticed that most businesses uh, had private security. Even the smallest of business had a uniform guard standing out front. Now I'm not advocating that for our country and I'm not advocating that law enforcement completely get out of the business of responding to a lot of things, but we ask our law enforcement to do a lot of things and almost too much. We spread them thin. You know, we go to neighbor troubles and business disputes and, and take check fraud complaints and all the above. And we respond to violent people, drunk driving, uh, we do an awful lot of things that maybe we shouldn't be doing. And then we can get into the issue of mental health, how much police officers have to deal with people on a mental health. So we're spread pretty thin. Having said that, if we're going to reduce and we're going to target what the police do, then leave the law enforcement for the things the private sector can't do. And I think that businesses are going to have to turn to other people, other professionals out there to help them secure their business, take responsibility for themselves. And to me, that's the way it ought to be done. I mean, we're all in this together. It's not just for law enforcement to secure your property. Uh, you know, it's for you to take some responsibility, even as a homeowner. It's, you know, you're responsible for keeping your own doors locked. You're responsible for maybe putting a security system and those kind of things, uh, locking your car at night instead of leaving it in the driveway with your window down and your, and your door open and everything in it is exposed to the criminal. The police can only do so much. So I think, I think going forward, I think there's probably an opportunity there, uh, probably in the private security business, and then working in conjunction with law enforcement. I think it could be a good marriage. It should be, and I think it would probably serve everybody well. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about law enforcement being proactive and, and in our industry, you know, um, I'm sorry, reactive, right? You know, our mm -hmm. industry is, is, is half reactive, half proactive. You talk about the proactivity between law enforcement and then the reactivity between law enforcement. I mean, law enforcement is primarily reactive, right? Yeah, it just, it, and it really can't be any other way. It's kind of hard. You know, they want us to be proactive uh, and get out there and prevent crime. Uh, but when you're handling run after run after run after run, you know, there's some, some uh, precincts and even some agencies, even in Garden City, you know, I started off my day with on the afternoon shift with four runs already backed up from the day shift. Uh, you can't do a lot of proactive things. Uh, you're just responding to crimes as they come in. And you try to do some reactive or some proactive patrolling where you've got some free time, but hopefully you have free time. And then that comes back to the whole question of reducing uh, police officers on the street. 
if you want police officers to prevent crime, they have to have some free time to patrol. They can't be going from run to run to run. They've got to have time to, uh, to drive down an alleyway, to look into windows, to on the midnight shift check and see if somebody's busted out a window or if somebody's driving suspiciously somewhere. If they don't have that kind of time to do that, if you reduce the numbers, then those, those kind of things are gonna exist. So then you're gonna to have to turn to somebody else to do it because the police are gonna to continue to be just reactive, take, take the report, investigate the crime and be there for the major incidents. And somebody else is gonna to have to protect your property. Do you think that there's a uh, there's a situation where a good risk a good community risk management plan, you know, both business government continuity could play into a safer streets in collaboration with public private partnerships? I think so. I, I think you know it's always difficult when you. Well, for, for let me back up and say that when I was a city manager, I had a lot of public private. Uh, cooperate in a lot of different areas. We had to. I, I was a city manager from 2004 to 2010, some of the worst economic times we saw back then. And, and uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't were we cutting money out of the budget, it was how much uh, every year. And how, how do we keep how do we keep services? And I had to turn to private partnerships to, to make those things happen all the time. And we've resisted doing that in law enforcement and a lot of the public stuff. Uh, some of it for good reason, but I think there's there's a there's a point where we can and understand that law enforcement can't be the best in security. Uh, we may not have the time, we may not have the ability to do just security. So can we partner with somebody else and learn from each other on what we need? And I think there definitely is some opportunity there there for both sides uh, to to work to work together. And I think, I think, yeah, I think there's, there's some abilities there. And I think it's going to be needed, especially with the reductions, we call it the defunding, but reduction in budgets uh, and less people. Uh, I don't think there's any other alternative. We're going to have to do it. You know, it comes down to something as simple as cutting grass. When I was a city manager in Garden City, I was looking uh, to cut my budget. I didn't want to lay people off, but I had to find other ways to provide services. So uh, we weren't hiring people to replace people. So I started looking around at services that somebody else could do, like cutting grass. Why, why am I paying a high-priced person uh, in my city uh, to cut grass when I need them for larger functions like our water system, which is something that really scared me back in the days was the was our water system. And and can I put people there and have them hire trained to do those? I can I can private I can privatize grass cutting, exactly what I did. Uh, turn some f facilities like the ice rink over to private people to operate rather than have the city operate the ice rink. Try to keep all the services, but work in conjunction with other people. And I believe there, I believe there's some avenue for that in law enforcement and public safety. How do you feel that, because this is something that I know a lot of our listeners will want to wanna dive into, but how do you feel that private security um, will be augmented with a, with a, you know, um, a budget crisis in law enforcement? Well, you know, when I was at MCOLS, uh, Michigan Commission Law Enforcement Standards, uh, back in probably the early 2000, probably 11, 12, 13, there was an initiative to allow private policing, to allow private entities to uh, hire their own police force. Now, MCOLS has been against that uh, and probably still are today, but, um, you know, it was, it was, there are, but there are examples of that around the country. I believe it's North Carolina 
they're allowed to, a business is allowed to form their own police department. I know some of the issue is, is now are you policing for profit? You know, what, what, what kind of policing do you, you know, if, if I have a, if I have a major incident and I have no overtime budget left, but I have to work, you know, my officers 24 hours around the clock because I have to for public safety, then, you know, it doesn't matter that I don't have an overtime budget. I've got to find the money. Something's going to give somewhere else. You know, could a private policing say, well, we don't have the money, so we're not going to do that. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm being a little bit absurd, but those are some of the arguments that people have against private policing. Now, we, we kind of have that a little bit in this state where a lot of our, we have some colleges and universities that have law enforcement agencies. And uh, some people would say that they're not typical law enforcement. Well, they are. They do just as much law enforcement as anybody else. Uh, you know, we've had, in fact, unfortunately, in the last couple of years, we've had a few campus police officers kill the line of duty because they can be some violent places. So uh, they, they are very much law enforcement. That's kind of a model where it's not a jurisdiction. It's not a city of whatever or a village of whatever or the state of whatever. It's now a public university. Now, in the state of Michigan, only a public university can have a uh, police department like a Michigan State University, Wayne State, U University of Michigan, because it's a public entity. Under the rules at MCOLs uh, and the state, if you're private, you're a private college, uh, you cannot have your own police department. So the argument's always been, well, why can't they? Why can't they have their own agency? It may be something, I, I'm not, I haven't been the, hu the hugest advocate of it, but it may be something we have to start looking at again, that maybe there's a different model to where it's security, um, uh, maybe a higher level of security. We do have something like that in the state. We have a thing called Public Act 330, where entities uh, can have a Public Act 330 uh, security agency where they have uh, a higher level of, they have a, a level of arrest authority other than a regular citizen and then carry firearms, but they're not quite police officers. We have a few of those around the state uh, with some corporations. But we might have to start looking at that and maybe increasing the duties or the authority of those security, security agencies. It may not be whether I like it or not like it. It may be something we have to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, and I think that from the, from the private sector standpoint, right, is, is, you know, risk mitigation, you know, drives prevention. Um, where, where we can see that, I, I mean, so, I mean, let's just talk, you know, simple physical security, right? You know, we put more lighting in a parking lot. We put more access control around a building and, and that's going to mitigate police response to that, to that building because it's harder to get in. It's, it's more lit, you know, an adversary body isn't going to want to draw attention to themselves. You know, it's, I mean, make, making a hard target, right? I mean, that's a concept, which I think, I think, people in our trade constantly attempt to do, and even in law enforcement, right? I want to be a hard target. I, I don't want to be an easy target, which kind of leads me to the, to, to a next point that I want to bring up. I mean, what do you think about not fixing a broken system um, for training, but to better train law enforcement, you know, kind of like, kind of like we do in the private sector, right? Or in the contractor world, you know, there's, um, you know, a, a better, a better facilitation and education um, to help society understand that, that we all have to, you know, kind of work together to build a better security understanding. Um, and I mean, just from a, I mean, we, we've dealt with this, you and I professionally, you know, law enforcement agencies don't want to pay for tier one, tier two training. They, they really don't. I mean, but FBI HRT does, um, mm -hmm. 
the whole community on the federal law enforcement side down at Flet C, right? They, they bring people in, you know, the military community to, to talk tactics and strategy. And, and I think that when it comes to risk mitigation, you know, the foundation of what we do in the private sector was learned from the military. As much as we don't say the words risk mitigation in the military, but it's, it's kind of the foundation in which we analyze and assess threats to understand, you know, escalation of force continuum and those different things. So, I mean, do you think that, to go back to the question, do you think that instead of fixing a broken system, because I don't necessarily think the system's broken, I think the criminal justice system's always going to be broken. I think that's a hard fix. But the law enforcement training and communal understanding of what law enforcement needs to do, uh, how do we address that issue? Well, I think we got to, even in the law enforcement community, but I think the public also has to understand that law enforcement is in a continual state of change, and it's meant to be that way. Uh, why I say that is, is that it can't be stagnant because because the world is not stagnant. It's, it's where our, our communities uh, evolve. You know, look at law, law enforcement is not that old. The law enforcement in our country is certainly not that old. You know, going back to the first organized policing in London, you know, it's not been that long ago. And then the first organized law enforcement uh, in, uh, in our country, it doesn't go back that far. I mean, the, I started in 1980 as a civilian police officer out of the army. And the changes I have seen just and since 1980 have just been amazing to me, not only in technology, but, uh, but in philosophy and the way we uh, uh, do things and the education level of police officers, things like that. So it's meant for change. It's, it should change. We should evolve. We should relook at things we used to do. What worked 20 years ago doesn't work today, those kind of things. And the public tells us what kind of policing they want. But what that takes and what, where we always fall short is what, what it takes to change is training. We have to retrain our people. We have to hire, first of all, the right people. We have to recruit and hire the right people for the philosophy that we're trying to uh, emanate in our law enforcement agencies. That's the first failing. Sometimes we don't attract the right people. We have to do a better job of, of, of background checking to get the right people in the door. And then, because you look at it, you're putting a police officer out there with a badge and the authority to take away somebody's, restrict somebody's constitutional rights. Most judges can't do that. You're putting, a, you're putting a weapon in their hand of some kind to take some kind of forcible action, maybe up to and including uh, death, that not a judge or anybody else in our country has. And we give that to a person uh, uh, right out of the academy who's 22 years old. That's a lot of authority. That takes a lot of training. And it takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of continual training. But the first thing that is cut in our country is training. Michigan Commission of Law Enforcement Standards had 28 people when I took over there in 2010. Excuse me, 2000, uh, yeah, 2010. And when I left, we had 18. They have 13 people now. And I just noted the other day, we knee-jerk everything. All of a sudden, there's more de-escalation training. There's more uh, this training and that training. Well, a lot of that training is already being done. I, I appreciate the legislature and the, and the governor wanting to take some kind of action. But a lot of things that they already uh, have uh, offered in their bills has either been tried or has been offered. The one failing is nobody attaches any money to it. So then they, But if they throw money at it, yeah. then there's no money to give into the community to uh, send a police officer to training. 
So you got to backfill overtime. Somebody's got to work. At some point, somebody has to work and respond to the incidents that are being reported to the police, and law enforcement doesn't have the money to do it. So it's the thing nobody wants to discuss is that, yeah, we're going to force training, and we need more training, but how are we going to pay for it? And what is good training? You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of it's turning to online training, which can be great stuff. But we're finding that in, uh, especially for law enforcement, and this really goes throughout everybody, everybody, is how we learn. There's been a lot of science in how we learn for the brain. Mostly we don't mature until we're 24 years of age. And then most people learn through actually doing, not just reading. So what we tried to do in law enforcement, what we've been doing, we, we're doing at MCOLS, is changing most of our training over to scenario-based training, putting officers through scenarios. So for instance, if you want somebody to learn cultural diversity, instead of lecturing them and reading them from a book and having them take a test, let's put them in a culturally diverse environment, even if it's play acting, uh, and let them deal with the particular situation. And we do that in the academies. We blend our training all the time. Traffic stop training, we may have some, a person of color be the person they're stopping and the person of color uh, uh, has a particular issue of racism and the officer has to deal with it. So they're not only dealing with the traffic stop, they're dealing with some culturally diverse issues as well. So we're trying to do that more in law enforcement. That takes time, it takes money, and it has to be continual throughout an officer's career. Uh, because look how our society changes. I mean, I was in a, I was in a meeting in uh, Grand Rapids several years ago representing the state through MCOLS, and we were meeting with the LBGTQ community. And the leader of the LBGTQ community was explaining to us uh, a particular verbiage, and I won't use it here on the radio, but it was a term that I would have perceived as negative. Uh, and he was trying to teach us how you can say the word this terminology, one way was okay and one way it wasn't. And I looked at him and I said, I don't know how I train that in my academies. I don't know how I do that. That's, that's difficult to do. And then they were talking about a new group in the LBGTQ community that existed, but they hadn't put a name to it yet. And they had been accusing us of not being sensitive. And I said, well, you haven't even identified a name for this. How am I supposed to train that? And how am I supposed to keep up with that? How about we just be respectful of each other, apologize if we use the wrong verbiage or language, and then teach us and we'll move on. But it takes money, it takes time, it takes persistence because it's an ever-evolving, changing environment. So I think we need to, so what we need to do in my, in my mind, kind of coming back to your question, Steve, is we, we need to narrow the focus and scope of what law enforcement does. And there are other things that I think we can, folk, we can work with private sector to do the things that we maybe can't do or shouldn't be doing. And maybe that is physical security. Uh, you will come in and take the report after you've been broken into, but you need to turn to maybe private sector to help you keep from being broken into again. What can you do to, to, to limit that risk and let us handle some of the other stuff, be the reactionary force and let, this, let the security be the proactive force. So I think there's some room there for that. Because honestly, I've seen this come and go. We're not going to fund it. We're going to demand it, but we're not going to pay for it. And that's a failing of our government. Well, and I, and I think, you know, we talk about terms like, you know, combat mindset, warrior mindset, right? And, and when you have, you know, coming from, you know, the culture of a protector, right? Um, someone that, you know, signs up to, to risk my life for, you know, a, a, a client that, that I barely know. You know, it's interesting because not everybody, not everybody can, can develop that sound mind to analyze threats, compartmentalize threats, assess them, and then, and then do their job, right? I mean, I'll, I'll say I, I've got an opinion, right? The, the officer 
in the George Floyd case, you know, there's some footage of him. He, he looks gone to me. He looks like he's been on a 19 hour shift and he's just gone. And I think that, and I, I've, I had an interaction recently with an agency uh, where we were working and, and I won't, I won't state any names or names of the agency, but um, got to meet one officer um, and he was just, he was just angry and he was tired because the, the, the department is telling everybody, Hey, you got to work overtime. Hey, you got to be here. Hey, there's, there's threats against law enforcement. People are shooting at the precinct, all these things. And, and you could just tell this one officer that I had a, a 10 minute interaction with very nice guy. We're very appreciative that we were there doing the things we were doing, but was just done. His, his, I, his, his, his give a damn was broken. And, and that's, that's a, that's an, that's a dangerous place to be when one or two of you have to go deal with a, a, a possible suicide, you know, suspect or, or, or a B and E and your mindset isn't there. And I, and I guess I'll say like, when we talk about mindset training, when we talk about conditioning, you know, our mind to deal with threat actors or hostile situations, you know, the culture I come from, right. I mean, we're more hyped up, you know, just hanging out with our buddies, but when it comes time to do work, when it comes time to, you know, throw on a tourniquet or, or apply pressure to a GSW or respond to a threat actor, there's this calm that comes over us because that's, that's where we've conditioned our minds to be. And I think there's a lot of law enforcement out there like that. I, I know a lot. I, I work with a lot. But I think there's also an understanding on the agency side, and I don't know how you feel about this, where we need to evaluate the stress factors on individual officers. And there has to be a process in the system to do that. Because if we miss that, you're, you're going to have another George Floyd incident. You're going to have multiple incidences where there's an excessive use of force because that guy is just detached with what is going on. And I think placing onus of responsibility back on the criminal. Why are we responding? Why are we responding? I mean, it's like, I mean, if I shoot somebody in my home, and you show up there as the responding agency or the officer, it's all about what I say. If I say, hey, I just smoked that dude because I didn't like him, that's going to be an issue in the report. But if I say I was in fear for my family's life and I was in, or I was in fear for my principal's life or my client's life uh, and, and we were in danger and there was no other avenue of approach, uh, I, I used the amount of escalation of force that I felt needed to mitigate the situation it's going to be a much different response, right? Well, yeah, you know, I don't mind sharing. You know, I shared with you earlier, I was in a shooting and, uh, you know, this whole warrior guardian thing, it drives me just insane. Um, you know, it's either, it's, and it's even in the law enforcement profession. I have this argument with, my, with some of my colleagues about, you know, they believe it's one or the other and the public sees this warrior versus you're only a guardian, you're not a warrior. You know, it's confusing, but you have to be both. I mean, in the shooting that I was in, uh, unfortunately, I had to take a man's life. I had to shoot him. The very first thing I did was I jumped up and, and tried to stop the bleeding. You know, those are two very distinct, different acts and, and thoughts that you have to do immediately. So we ask our police officers to do that every day. And so in the meantime, you have to make sure that you have somebody out on, on the street who is mentally sound every day because you're having to make those kind of judgments. You can't be having a bad day and be mad and say, nah, today I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to help that guy. He tried to kill me. Why would I want to help him? Because it's your duty. You have to go from, from 
trying to kill someone to try to save their life. And a micro, I wasn't taught that in the military. In the military, you know, we're taught in the military to, you know, we, we engage the target, we take out the target, we step over and move on to the next target. That's what you do. At least that's what we did, you know, when I was trained. Now, as an MP, obviously, we were trained a little bit differently, but still, and yet, uh, it was still not like civilian law enforcement. I had to kind of be retrained when I joined civilian law enforcement. That, but that's the mindset. So I teach in my leadership classes that, for me, uh, supervisor, Think about it this way, Steve. Think about, and, and let's go back to George Floyd for a minute. Let me make some, something's clear. I don't, there's no way I can come close to saying what that officer did was, was right. I mean, what he did was horrible. That was, he's not been trained that way. That's, uh, he's, nobody's ever trained him that way. We never have trained that way in the history of law enforcement. We, we didn't train that way in the military as MPs. Uh, what he did was just, was just wrong. There's no way to, I'll give him, I'm willing to give him a fair day in court, but from what I saw, there's just no way to 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 uh, to say what he did was right. So it was terrible, and I don't know what led up to it. But just think about it this way: Had there been a supervisor on that street, now they could say the other officers are just as responsible. Yeah, maybe so. Okay, I'll go with that. Think if there had been one boss on the scene. This is the other thing we we have a we have a, a, a major problem with when we cut police and we cut positions. We end up cutting supervision. So there's no supervisor out there who has, not, it's not only the good thing to do, the nice thing to do, it's their job to intercede, to go in and grab that officer by the shoulder, pull him off that guy's neck and say, what are you doing? Stop. And I, I can tell you examples after examples after examples of law enforcement supervisors who have done that, and I've seen do that, and I've done that, or I've had that done to me, because you get in the midst of a fight, you get in the midst of a high adrenaline situation, sometimes you can't turn certain things off. You need somebody to jump in if you can't, and you also need to know for that supervisor, you need to know your people. That's uh, something, a mantra in my leadership classes I teach all the time is you need to know your people. You need to know that your officer is going through a divorce. You need to know that your officer is going through bankruptcy. You need to know your officer is going through all of those. Your officer is drinking a lot. They're coming in disheveled every day when they used to come in in a clean uniform. You need to know what they're doing because you're putting a gun that they can take somebody's life and a badge that they can take somebody's freedom. And you're putting them out there every day in a patrol car making life and death decisions in a microsecond. And you have, you have to do something about that. But I, I come back to the supervision. A lot of it does come to supervision, not only from the top, but a first-line supervisor. And had there been one in Minneapolis, we may not be here today. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let me ask one more really important question because I, I you, know, you know, studying the economic side of this and, and even the geopolitical involvement, which we could go on for days about, I, I think there is definitely foreign involvement in, in, in making this situation worse. Um, we, we could go on for days about that, but when you talk about, you know, and I know, I, know the, I know we've used a different terminology than defunding, but you talk about defunding of law enforcement, how does that affect the economy as a whole? Well, it comes back to where you're going to put that money at and what are you going to do with it? Is it going to have a real effect? I mean, if you're taking that on one pot and putting it in another, the other pot needs to work. Otherwise, you're taking it away from this pot and you're going to lose some services and people are going to have to expect to lose some services. We're not real good in this country about giving up something we've got. So the first time that a, first time that a citizen calls the police agency and says, hey, my neighbor is uh, they're playing their music too loud. And so I'm sorry, but we don't have anybody to send to you. They're gonna be irate. 
I pay my taxes. I deserve, I deserve some response. So, well, we're only here for major incidents now. We can't afford to come to some of these things. Uh, we're not going to do that anymore. It's going to have a major impact when we, when we start. And we've seen that. We've seen this cutting of services. I told you going back in the, the latter 2000s when I was city manager, we went from 48 cops to 28 cops in Garden City. And some, well, I think we did an awesome job of, uh, of keeping up with the runs. We did have some things that we couldn't do anymore. And we had to say, well, you know, we can't come out to your accident scene. You're gonna to have to come to the police department and make that report. People don't like that. We don't like to give up on those things. Uh, you know, I'd already talked about the Public Act 302, the funding of training. You want more training, here's a vehicle for money for training that was developed years ago, but the less officers, the defunding, if you wanna call it, is probably gonna result in a, in a reduction of traffic violations and there's gonna be less money going into training. So you better come up with a, another way, a funding vehicle to do that kind of training. And then the trickle down to the courts and then the communities, it's gonna affect other, uh, other ones when, when we start doing those things. And then the cost outside of public government, if crime goes up, uh, we all know property crimes go up, what happens, our insurance start going up. If the crime rate goes up, insurance companies uh, evaluate your rate. Uh, you know, that's the big battle going on in Detroit. I applaud Mayor Duggan. Uh, he's going after the insurance industry over the high rates that we pay in, in the Detroit area for, uh, for car insurance. And they base the car insurance, base it off of the carjackings and car thefts. I mean, I, I, I agree with Mayor Duggan, but you can probably see a little bit of why the car, I mean, the, the insurance companies into it for the profit, certainly. But, it, but that's how they, it gives you an idea of how they measure these kind of things. So, you know, we got to understand that, you know, the knee bones connected to the, to the shin bone kind of thing. And what you do here is going to cause an effect over here. And we have to think these things out a little bit slower rather than just throwing bills out into the legislature and signing them, demanding this, requiring that without some kind of funding vehicle or understanding where the money's going to come from. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I also feel that, you know, the, the, other, the other effects are going to drive down trade, commerce, business. I mean, people are going to start pulling their, their companies out of a metro Detroit, out of a Detroit, and move to Wyoming um, or move to Montana uh, because there's, there's still land out there to purchase, right? And, and nobody, wants to, nobody wants to really be in a perpetual state of fear, um, you know, I mean there's a there's a, a group of us i would say out there that are are okay with a little bit of chaos um in fact maybe we thrive in a little bit of chaos but i also know that you know our customers on uh, on the security side our our private clients and our corporate clients there is a level of fear right now that you know i mean covid only only started it and this is just um kind of made it worse I think that what I want to do is, is focus as a business, right? I want to focus on being part of the solution. And I think that collaborating, coming together, helping with the, the mindset and, and the training and the training needs. And I'm not talking about flat range, you know, 25, 50 meter, you know, gun stuff. I'm not talking about any of that. I mean, if you don't know how to shoot a gun, you probably shouldn't be a cop, but I'm talking about the ability to handle threats and, and pressure. I think that, I think that together as a whole, right, there's a communal solution here. There's a solution to where we can say, how can we be better? Cause we always can be right. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we always do, you know, we do crazy things like uh, when, when something like this happens, all of a sudden, you know, the militarization of police comes in again. I, I don't know how that, that's just an opportunist. I don't know how that got into the conversation starting with Mr. Floyd, that that was a militarization thing, but that whole thing came up and now we're not gonna, uh, police departments aren't gonna get military equipment. We got a lot of, that, that was a good partnership with the federal government to get things that local communities couldn't afford, you know? There's no, there's no police agency in, in anywhere that I know of that has a tank. Uh, you know, they don't have tanks. They have armored personnel carriers maybe to haul their people to and from. And we did get some, some weapons, but, uh, but those are weapons that we've needed. Uh, we've gotten other things, little things like cameras and, and things like that. I remember when, at Garden City. So we always get into these crazy conversations about militarization and, and when we should actually be working together. And there's, there's an arena for that and for security. It takes everybody. You know, when I was a city manager, I, I learned this. I, I thought the world rotated around the police department when I was a police chief, of course, you know. Everybody's worried about crime. Well, what I found out was is when I was a city manager that one of my biggest complaints were neighborhood problems. People having an issue with their neighbor doing this, leaving our garbage out too long, doing that, so forth. So were they concerned about crime? Certainly. But not until it happened in their backyard. What they were worried about was what their neighbor was doing. Not to say that law enforcement's not important. Certainly a very, law enforcement's always been that underlying thing, keep your city safe and we take it for granted. I always kept telling my people at Garden City at the police department, you know, we could be taken for granted because we do our job so well, there's little crime. So what's the first thing we wanna do when there's no crime? We wanna cut the police because we forget that what got us here. But it's not totally the police, it's having a, what I learned as being a city manager when I was first alluding to was, is that it takes everybody. So you can't have, you can't just put all your money into police and nobody else. To have a healthy community, you need a good uh, parks and rec system if people want their kids to do stuff. You need a, a library. You need to have other good facilities like water. Uh, you need to have all these things that make a community, a clean streets, plowed streets, all the things that people want to move to your community and not have blight, not have houses that are falling down. People want to live in a nice neighborhood and a partnership with the school system. A good school system always helps drive people in with kids and it keeps the community thriving. So my point is what I learned of being a city manager was it's not just about one thing. It's not just one about one organization. It's about, a, it's about the entirety and somehow we've got to find a balance. And I think, and, and coming back to your point, I, we've asked law enforcement for too long to do too many things. We've put all our eggs in one basket. They've got to be social workers. They've got to be security experts. They've got to be first responders. They've got to be medical responders. They have to be mental health experts. They have to do all these things and they have to be a warrior when things go bad, because when things go bad, uh, and somebody's going running rampant through the streets, Somebody, somebody's going to call the police and expect the police to get there and take care of it. And they've got to be a guardian. They've got to be the person that consoles somebody when they've lost a loved one. And we've asked these people to do just too much. So what, what are the things we can take away from law enforcement and give to other people? And I think that's an avenue that certainly security uh, can have. And I think what you're doing here at TNG certainly could have a partnership with law enforcement and start a conversation about what can we do that you you not so much can't do but don't want to do and don't have the time to train because we have to put all of our money over to this basket because we can't do this one anymore so i think there's i think there's a lot it's a, it's certainly worthy of the discussion and has to happen much much more yeah absolutely well you know what dave i, I really appreciate your insight I, I know our listeners do as well i mean i guess my final question here is where do you see i mean from a second and third order of effects where do you see 
all of this going with the unrest and and the targeting of police. I mean, there's been there's been a spike in in, in ambushes on on law enforcement. Um, you know, I mean, just when we were in Minneapolis, we we had a location that was overwatching a precinct, and uh, you know, we had a we had a general understanding with law enforcement that if they were if they were ambushed in any way, we would uh, we would we would do what we can to uh, help them get out of that situation. And and that was a that was a great unique uh, position for us to be in. And you know, I mean, really, it was just because of the guys' backgrounds that were there doing what they were doing that law enforcement was comfortable with that. Um, but at the end of the day, when we're talking about life safety, I mean, where do we see all this going? Well, honestly, I'm, I've never been so concerned in my whole career as I have been now. And even through Ferguson, you know, uh, there were some downturns there. And, but it just didn't seem to be as bad. The narrative here seems to be even worse. And, uh, you know, I call it an election year, call it whatever you want. There, there seems to be a really hard push. And here, here's the problem, for, for the, way, the way I see it. So we're, we want the best and the brightest in law enforcement, public safety. How are we going to, how are we going to, how are we going to bring in the best and the brightest in the, in the current environment? I mean, yesterday, okay, the day before uh, the incident in Minneapolis, law enforcement were applauded as heroes all over our country. And I think they're still seen that way by a lot, most people. Uh, the media is not reporting it that way. They're reporting the negativity, but officers are going out every day going, yesterday I was a hero for coming in during COVID. And today I'm not a hero. I didn't do, I didn't kill Mr. Floyd. I wasn't involved in it. I wouldn't have done that. Why, why are you hating me or why are you trying to ambush me for something that I didn't do just because I wear a uniform? How many people are we going to attract to the profession? Good people. You want the, so what law enforcement, what all public safety do is they share your worst day, worst day of your life. You may only have one in your entire lifetime, but you're going to call and there's probably going to be a cop or a firefighter or somebody in public safety. Generally, it's probably going to be a cop who's going to come to your worst day of your life. We don't see people on their best day. On my worst day of my life, if I call a cop, I want the best and the brightest walking in my door helping me. I don't want somebody who just took the job because they needed a job and the best and the brightest went off to another industry because they didn't want to be vilified. They don't want to be on uh, national TV. They don't want to be sued. Talking about qualified immunity, taking away immunity. There's reasons for that. I just put a thing on Facebook yesterday saying, you know, research qualified immunity, read it, understand why the courts put qualified immunity in place before you make a decision. It's not a bad thing for our country as a whole, not just the police officer. But if you're going to get rid of it, then let's bring everybody to the party, get rid of qualified immunity for judges and prosecutors, and anybody else. I mean, just make it a free for all, we'll turn it into the wild, wild west. So I, I worry about that. I worry about our recruiting. And, and why I worry is, you know, when you when you miss a generation, people are negative. It takes a while to get caught up of people that want to be good people that want to be in law enforcement. And I can tell you from my experience at MCOLS, I think it was, uh, I'm trying to remember the number that was well over 50% of the officers in the state of Michigan are over the age of 40. At least that was probably it back in 2017 when I left. What that means is being over 40 means they've got 20, 25 years on the job already if they came in at 20. They're getting to or at retirement. I see a lot of officers are starting to retire. If not early, they're retiring when maybe they wouldn't have because they don't want to go out there every day to this kind of scrutiny. So then you have an age gap. You have senior officers leaving the street who have the maturity. Remember we talked about the maturity. We don't gain a mature brain until we're 24. Uh, they've got the scenarios, the real life uh, scenarios behind them to make good decisions. What we're left with is younger officers 
who are uh, have no not as many life experiences, maybe not as much training, uh, and maybe we end up lowering requirements to get more people to apply, and maybe we have a, a less qualified person out on the street who's responding to our worst day. That's that's the problem I see is we're going to have a gap. I think as a country, I, I truly believe in the United States of America, and that the, and I believe in Americans, and that we're strong. We've survived a lot. Uh, and I think we'll survive this, and I think we'll come out of it better, but it's going to take a while. But there's going to be some, some years, and there's going to be some damage, I think, along the way as, as we get this thing out. But I think uh, doing things like this discussion today, having a public-private partnership to fix this together, it's not one entity is going to fix us. It's not one politician. It's not one president. It's not one mayor. It's not one anybody. It's going to take everybody coming to the table, uh, understanding what the issues are, and try to come to some kind of agreement. And not everybody's going to win. That some people are going to have to give some things, some people are going to have to gain some things. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think we'll be stronger. And that's, that's what I hope comes out of this. Well, Dave, I, I really appreciate your time. I, I know our listeners do. This has been very insightful. I think we should have another conversation and collaborate, you know, uh, more and, and try to implement change as we can, um, because we've got a pretty, pretty good working group and partnership between you and I and, and all of our network. I think we should, you know, have you back on here in a month um, and try to keep uh, our listeners and society up to date on the changes that we see getting implemented. Cause we know there's going to be changes. Um, and I think that, you know, community understanding of those changes, industry understanding from the private security side is important. Um, I think that, you know, I, I honestly believe there should maybe be a committee. I don't know if it's a state committee or national committee, you know, uh, on private security and policing um, where we talk about not just things from a threat standpoint, but from a policy standpoint, from a, from a, um, uh, maybe a threat actor standpoint, what we're seeing, but you know, that's for, that's for another episode. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to come back. You know, Steve, and I'll say in closing too, I, I think it's the right time because we got the right people in place. You know, I, I became, I went into public service, the military, thinking I was going to go in and be a lifer, and I fell in love with law enforcement, and and then and found found my niche out in private law enforcement or, or uh, public law enforcement, but because I want to serve, it sounds like a, it just sounds like an adage, but I truly I I I want to serve. I want to help people and make our country better. Uh, you know, the people that I see in your industry and knowing you personally, I, I know that's what you're about. And knowing your people, I know that's what they're all about. You don't go in the military and do what you do without a without this purpose to serve. And I think with a with a collaboration between public and private in this, with everybody's understanding that we're here to serve, uh, then I think we can probably come up with a pretty product. I think you're right. I think there, we've got some discussions to have. We've got to convince the legislators uh, to do so, to, to get involved and to fund some of these things or put the laws in place to allow it to happen. But I certainly think there's some some availability. I love to come back. You know, I'm not afraid to talk. And I certainly like to, uh, the one good thing about turning old is I've, I've got a lot to say. So I'll come back anytime you want. It, we appreciate your wisdom, Dave. So everybody, thanks for listening to TNG's podcast. We appreciate you. Uh, subscribe, like, share on, on social media. Um, we're on Facebook, LinkedIn, um, Instagram. Uh, we're on uh, Spotify itunes for the podcast so please uh reach out to us if you have any questions uh if you're interested in being on as a guest uh, we'd love to have you uh and dave again thank you for your time oh my pleasure steve anytime it's a wrap
You've been listening to the North Group Podcast. We're security, refined by intelligence. If you have questions for us, they can be emailed to info at tngdefense.com or visit our website at www.tngdefense.com. Don't forget to subscribe and stay safe.